Church family, I invite you to open up to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. We're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 29, all of chapter 9 of Genesis today. The title of the message is God's Blessing Renewed. God's Blessing Renewed renew Genesis chapter 9 um, we're going to begin by reading this uh, chapter and so I want you to follow along in your copy of God's word uh, as I read um, and and two things Can I just say this real quick two things as, as I read um, one, I definitely want you to pay attention to the words and let's get this, these verses into our minds uh, before we walk through them and um, and seek to understand what is there um, but also, just enjoy God's Word. Just enjoy it. I know sometimes I get so caught up, and even when I'm reading, just the details and what am I trying to learn, and, and yes, we want to be learning, but sometimes I forget just to enjoy that this is God speaking to us. And, um, and so let's, let's just find joy in, in the Word of the Lord today. Beginning in chapter 9 of Genesis, verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. 
After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. It's the word of the Lord for his church today. Last week, I asked this question. I said, what do you do when you step off of an ark and realize that you've been completely rescued from God's judgment? What do you do? Well, we saw in the last three verses of chapter 8 that what you do is you worship. The right response to rescue is worship. Noah worshiped the one who had rescued him. Noah worshiped the Lord. And if we are recipients of God's rescue, that is, if we've trusted in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, then we ought to worship the Lord as well. Worship, thankful worship, should characterize our lives as people who have been rescued from our sin. But then there's another question that we need to ask. What do you do when you step off the ark? You, you worship. That's top priority. But then we can ask this question. What's life going to be like now? What's life going to be like in God's new world? Now, when, when I say new world, you may hear me say that a couple of times today. Um, I don't mean that God destroyed the whole universe and started completely over, like just erased everything with the flood. But in, in a very real sense, the global flood that we read about in Genesis chapter 7 and 8, it kind of wiped the slate clean. And so when Noah and his family stepped off the ark, they were stepping into kind of a, a, a new start, a fresh start in this world that God had made. And, and this makes us ask the question, what's life going to be like in God's new world or in God's post-flood, after-the-flood world? Well, chapter 9 reveals to us that life in the post-flood world would be filled with both sin and with blessing. It's going to be filled with both sin and with blessing. In one sense, it was a fresh start, but in another sense, it was kind of like that saying goes, same song, second verse. It's going to be a lot of sin, but we're also going to see God's continued blessing. The slate may have been wiped clean in one sense, but human hearts had not been wiped clean from sin. The corrupt people may have been destroyed, but the curse of sin was not lifted by the flood. One of the things that stands out in chapter 9, uh, the text that we just read, is that sin is still very much present and alive and active in God's world. But, but we also see that God's blessing is still very much alive and active in God's world. In fact, the very first verse of chapter 9 says this, And God blessed Noah and his sons. We, we, we see lots of evidence of sin in the world in chapter 9, and yet chapter 9 begins with God blessing. God blessed Noah and his sons. There's a lot going on in chapter 9, but I think we could summarize it this way. God's blessing of life is conveyed through his commands, covenant, and continued plan of deliverance. God's blessing of life. Whenever we think about God's blessing, we always want to think about life. God's blessing always leads to life. And we see that in this passage through God's commands, his covenant, and his continued plan of deliverance. That kind of gives you a little outline for chapter 9. Chapter 9 is both very sad and very hopeful. It's sad because, again, we clearly see in these verses that the world is still wrecked by sin. The human heart is still wrecked by sin. The flood was an act of God's judgment upon sin. The ark was a means of God's salvation toward one man and his family, but neither the flood nor the ark healed the human heart. 
But at the same time, this passage is incredibly hopeful. We see God renew his original blessings upon humanity. I use the word God's blessings renewed in the title of the message because what we'll see is really a reflection of a lot of what he said back in the Garden of Eden. It's a renewal of these things. We see that humans are still made in his image. We see that God still desires and provides for human flourishing. And we see that the promise of a deliverer that he made back in the Garden of Eden, remember remember back in Genesis chapter 3, that promise of a coming deliverer, that promise is still very much alive and well, still very much on the mind of God. I hope today that as we study Genesis chapter 9, we will continue growing in our awareness of the reality of sin, but also in our thankfulness and dependence upon the blessings of God as we see them in his commands, in his covenant, and continued plan of deliverance. I want to share with you three truths uh, today from chapter 9 of Genesis about God's renewed blessings in this post-flood world. And that's the world we live in. We live in the post-flood world. The first blessing that we see is this. God commands human life to be highly valued. God commands human life to be highly valued. Now, sometimes when we think about commands, we don't think about blessing, right? We think about a burden. But God's God's commands always are a blessing because God only commands things that are good for us. God's commands always bring life. And we see that very clearly in these commands in chapter 9. God commands human life to be highly valued. If we think about that question that I posed a few minutes ago, what's life going to be like in this new world, this post-flood world, we could probably say one way, one thing we could say is this. Human life is just as valuable to God post-flood as it was pre-flood, as it was in the very beginning when he created the heavens and the earth. And so humans should imitate God by placing an equally high value on human life. This continued high value upon human life is definitely, it's certainly a blessing from God. I mean, just think about it. If it was you or me starting over with the world that we had made, we might hold a grudge on humanity right? We might go, well, you know, those humans, those humans before the flood, they just disregarded me. They were corrupt. The whole earth was filled with corrupt. I know I placed really high value on them back in the beginning, in the garden, uh, but I don't think I'm going to place quite as high value on these humans who just keep rebelling against me. That might be what we said, but God, God doesn't do that. He renews this blessing of placing a high value upon humanity, Humans in the post-flood world were just as much image bearers of God as they were in the pre-flood world, which means they were and they are, because that's the world in which we live today, to be valued just as much as they were valued in the Garden of Eden. Notice, uh, uh, notice a few ways that we see human life being valued in verses 1 through 7. First, we see just this command for humans to, to fill the earth with human life. We see this command for humans to fill the earth with human life. It's really a double command to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth or to team on the earth. We see it in verse 1 and verse 7. That's why I'm calling it a double command. We see it kind of bookend verses 1 through 7. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth in verse 1, team upon the earth in verse 7. This repeats almost word for word, God's original command for humanity found in Genesis chapter 1. God's desire is that the earth be filled with image bearers of himself who are living in such a way that reflect the glory of the one who made them. 
That's God's desire for this earth that he's made, that it would be filled with humans who are reflecting the glory of the one whose image they bear. I've said it before, I will say it again and again, one, because it's what the Bible teaches, and two, because our society is trying to tell us the exact opposite. The problem with our world is not too many humans. God's desire is for the earth to be filled with humans. Even after the fall, even after the flood, God still commands humans to reproduce and multiply human life upon the earth. The multiplication of humanity brings glory to the creator of humanity. But our society wants us to think otherwise. Our society celebrates not having children. even destroying children before they're ever born. Our society holds up as heroes people who, who say things like this, well, I'm not going to have children because I'm trying to help save our planet. The people who say that are applauded. They're lifted up as these heroes. They're saving the planet because they're rejecting God's command for humanity. But those statements don't come from a biblical worldview. Now, listen, obviously there's a right way and a wrong way to multiply humanity. But we can go back to Genesis chapter 2 and see that God has standards. God has boundaries for human reproduction. So it's just a license to multiply however we want. And certainly there are other principles of wisdom which play into those decisions as well. But we need to realize that one of the ways that we are to value human life is by valuing multiplication of humanity when it's done according to God's rules and boundaries. Human multiplication is a good thing in the sight of God. There's another way that we see God valuing human life. And this is just very practical, right? What do we see? We see that God provides food for the multiplication of human life. If human life is going to multiply, well, God's created us in such a way that our physical bodies need food to survive. And he provides for that. Verse 2 through 3 provide instructions for eating. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Pause for a second. We see, the, we see sin. We see the, the corruption of this world. There's dread that's upon the animals because of humanity, right? But in that, we still see God's blessing. Into your hands they are delivered, the text says. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So now humanity is not only allowed to eat plants, but God opens up the animal world to be a provision of food for the multiplication of humanity. It's just real practical. Every time we sit down to eat, whether we're eating vegetables or whether we're eating meat, we should be reminded that human life is valuable to God. And thus it should be valuable to us. This food is a provision from the Lord. Why? Because he values human life greatly. And then I want you to notice a third and a fourth way we see God placing a high value upon human life in verses 1 through 7. We see him commanding the multiplication of human life, providing food for human life. Let me give you a third and a fourth way. And I've got to give them to you at the same time because they go one with the other. So, God forbids the unjust taking of human life and God commands the just punishment of anyone who unjustly destroys human life. I know that's a mouthful. Let me say it again, okay? God forbids the unjust taking of human life. Think murder. God commands the just punishment of anyone who commits that murder, 
who unjustly destroys human life. Look at verse 4 through 6. Again, thinking big picture, God is valuing human life, and so should we. Verse 4 through 6. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. In these verses, God is commanding the just punishment of those who shed blood, of those who take life unjustly. Which implies that he is then forbidding for humans to unjustly take human life. We don't see the command, do not murder, that is coming in the Ten Commandments later on. But we do see that command implied in the fact that those who do take life unjustly are to be punished by having their lives taken from them. Both humans and animals will be held accountable for the unjust destruction of human life. Now, say you're using the word just and unjust a lot, and I don't see that word in these verses. Where are you getting that from? Why are you using that? Well, let me explain. I use the word unjust or just as a qualifier intentionally. Obviously, there is a justified taking of human life. Notice that God says, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. So God wants man to carry out the punishment upon those, it's God's punishment ultimately, upon those who would unjustly take human life. In other words, the punishment for murder is death, and the death of the murderer is to be carried out by other humans. This is one place, not the only place, but one place where Scripture does seem to build this argument for uh, capital punishment, a scriptural warrant for capital punishment. Now, some would argue against capital punishment as inhumane, and certainly there are very much inhumane ways of carrying out capital punishment. However, God's Word says that a lack of capital punishment is inhumane. Why? When you think about it this way, the level of punishment for the wrongful taking of something reveals the value which has been placed upon the thing that has been taken. I'll say that again. The level of punishment for the wrongful taking of something reveals the value which has been placed upon the thing that has been taken. Let me give you an illustration. There's a different level of penalty for stealing a car versus stealing a candy bar. Both get punished, but there's a different level of punishment. Why? Well, because there's a different value placed upon those items which have been taken. The car is more valuable than the candy bar, so it's going to come with a greater penalty. And so, friends, when a human life is unjustly taken, what God is saying, when murder happens, when a homicide takes place in some way, shape, or form, it is the taking of, it is the destruction of an image bearer of God. That's what he roots it in. For God made man in his own image. The most valuable part in God's eyes of his creation is humanity. And so it comes with the highest degree of punishment. It is destruction of an image bearer of God. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the size of that human life. It doesn't matter the age of that human life. It doesn't matter the level of contribution that human life may be able to make to society. It doesn't matter the skin color of that human life. 
Doesn't matter the economic status of that human life. Doesn't matter the ethnicity or the nationality of that human life. Every human life is highly valued by God and therefore ought to be highly valued by us. Now obviously there's way more that could be said about this topic and great care should be taken in the application of this passage. But I mainly want you to see the big picture here. God is blessing humanity by providing commands which place a high value upon human life, which means when his commands are obeyed, human flourishing is the result. Life, continuation of life is the result. And so we see this as a blessing from God. But then the text moves from God's commands to his covenant. So we want to move from the commands here into the covenant. The second truth I want to share with you is this. God's covenant provides hope. God's covenant provides hope. God's commands reveal a high value that is placed upon human life. God's covenant provides us with hope. We need hope if we're going to flourish in this world. We need hope if life is going to flourish. And God's covenant provides that. In verses 8 through 17, we see the word covenant repeated seven times. When a word like that gets repeated seven times in ten verses, it's probably a word that we want to pay very close attention to. I mean, you can't read verses 8 through 17 without going. The main point of that has to be something to do with covenant because God says it over and over and over in those verses. In fact, the word covenant is one of the most important words in the Bible. We could spend lots of time talking about covenant. I'm not going to spend a ton of time, though though I I, kind of want to, uh, talking about covenant, but we're going to see this covenant language used again in uh, the book of Genesis, and we see it again throughout the Bible. So we'll spend some more time on it later. Uh, But I do want to take just a moment to think about covenant. Back in chapter 6, verse 18, before the flood, God told Noah that he would establish his covenant with him, and now we see God continue to use this language of covenant. I gave you this definition of covenant a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 6, and I just want to remind you of it. Maybe you're wondering, what is a covenant? Well, a covenant is the particular promise of God to preserve life by remaining in relationship with those included in the covenant. A covenant is a particular promise, think promise when you hear the word covenant, a promise of God to preserve life, it's a life-giving promise, by remaining in relationship with those included in the covenant. There are several very important covenants throughout the Bible. We see the Noahic covenant here. We'll see the Abrahamic covenant. We'll see the Davidic covenant, God's covenant with David. And ultimately, we'll see the new covenant, God's covenant with his people we see in the New Testament. But this covenant is unique in that God not only makes this covenant with Noah and with Noah's offspring, but he also makes it with quote, every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. So this seems to be a a covenant for the entire planet, a covenant for all of God's creation. It's a specific covenant. God is covenanting to do something um, very specific, to never destroy the earth, the entire earth, again, with a flood, with a global flood. Verse 11 says, I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Now notice, this is not a promise that there will never be a flood. 
The promise is that there's never going to be another global flood. He's never going to do what he had just done, destroy the entire earth with a flood. So he's not going to do that. But also notice, this is not a promise to never destroy the earth. This is a promise to never destroy the earth with a flood. Remember, look back at chapter 8, verse 22. God said, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. While the earth remains. The Apostle Peter actually calls Christians to look at the flood as proof that global judgment and destruction is coming again one day. It just won't be by means of a flood. Let me read those verses to you. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 says this, For they, talking about people who were saying, Oh, God's never going to send any more punishment. Jesus is never coming back. That's what these people were saying. He says, For they deliberately overlooked the fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed, ready, was deluged with water and perished. He's talking about the flood. But by the same word, Peter says, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So God's saying, I'm never going to destroy the earth with a global flood. Doesn't mean there's not going to be local floods, but there's never going to be another global flood. But he's not promising he's never going to destroy the earth. It just won't be by flood the next time. Another destruction is coming. Friends, this is why we must believe upon Jesus Christ for salvation so that we will escape the coming destruction as Noah escaped the one that came in his day through his visible faith in the Lord. But until that time, God has promised to never destroy the earth again with a flood, which means that we can live with a sure hope that until that final destruction comes, God is sovereignly preventing worldwide destruction through a flood. Which means his covenant that he makes is a blessing of life. And notice God gives a visible reminder of this covenant. Verse 12 through 17 reveal that God turns the bow. He's talking about the rainbow. He turns that into a sign of this covenant. I want you to think about the first time it rained. I don't think I've ever thought about this. I was studying this passage, preparing for this message. I want you to think about the first time it rained after Noah and his family got off the ark. What happened the last time it rained? Total destruction, and they had a boat to get onto that God was going to rescue them from. I want you to think about, it's very likely that they would have felt that drop of rain and looked at each other and, and not said, yes, my garden is going to get watered today. But they would have looked at each other and said, oh no, now we've messed up. God's angry with us. Here comes another flood, and we're going to be destroyed. Think about how much hope this covenant would have given to Noah and to his family and to their offspring as they passed down this story of the global flood, but then were able to say, but God promised that he's never going to send this global flood again. God calmed their fear by providing them with a certain hope that he would do no such thing. And when they looked up and saw the rainbow in the sky, it would provide rest and peace and hope that God was being reminded. Notice the text says, God says, when I see the bow, 
I will be reminded of my covenant. So they're going to be reminded that God is being reminded of his covenant with them. And this hope of continued life would have provided them with a motivation to obey the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I mean, why would, I, why would, why would we spend the time raising children and doing all that if every time we feel rain, we think it's just going to be another global flood? God's providing with a covenant that, again, is leading to the multiplication of humanity. But let's not miss the obvious. Who is it that makes the covenant? It's God. And that's one thing we see throughout Scripture. Whenever we see a covenant, it's always God's doing. Because God's the one who makes it. It's up to God to keep it. And God always keeps His covenants. And so just like their value of human life was to be rooted in God's value of human life, their certain hope of um, that no flood would destroy the earth again was rooted in God's covenant with them. And this blessing of life, this blessing of hope comes from God, not from ourselves or anything else in this world. So, in this post-flood world, God's blessing is seen in His commands that human life would be highly valued. God's blessing is seen in His covenant that provides hope. And then third, we see this blessing. Sin is still a problem, but God's plan will overcome. This is that continued plan of deliverance that I mentioned earlier in that main idea statement. Sin is still a problem, but God's plan will overcome. Have you ever read a book or watched a movie that had a bad ending? Have you ever got to the end and went, Come on now. Uh, Most of the time that doesn't happen. Most of the time movies and books, they have good endings. But once in a while you you watch a movie and you go, that's not how I wanted that movie to end. At surface level, Noah's life appears to be like one of those movies that has a bad ending. I mean, Noah is this example of uh, exemplary faith. The story is one of exciting rescue. But then it seems to end with explicitly gross behavior. Exemplary faith, exciting rescue, and we get to the end and it's explicitly gross behavior. Verse 18 begins to shift our attention really from Noah to his sons by reminding us of their names, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it also does some foreshadowing, verse 18, by telling us that Ham had a son named Canaan and that from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. We see that in verse 19. Some foreshadowing of what's coming. Then beginning in verse 20, we learn that Noah planted a vineyard, he drank some of the wine, he got drunk, and apparently he took off his clothes and lay down in his tent. Clearly not good behavior. Scripture over and over speaks against drunkenness, tells us to cover our nakedness. Our nakedness is a, is a sign of our, our sin. We see that all the way back in the Garden of Eden. But the emphasis of bad behavior really here is not on Noah, but on his son, his son Ham. Ham apparently goes into his father's tent, looks, and that word means more than a passing glance, an accidental glance, looks at his father's nakedness and then tells his brothers who are outside the tent about what he saw. What do they do? Well, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, they take a garment, they hold it up at their shoulders, they back into the tent, they cover up their father so that they never see him. It's one of those... And there's more than one of these in the Bible. One of those weird and gross stories that we find in Scripture that sometimes makes you wonder why God put some of the stuff in His Word that He did. 
just being honest. Sometimes we go, all right, uh, you know, I could have done without that ending to the story of Noah. But there's a reason. There's a reason. Sin is still a problem. First, we need to notice that what Ham did was wrong and what Shem and Jepheth did was right. We don't necessarily have all the details. I'm glad God didn't give us any more details than he did in this story. But what we do know clearly from the response is that whatever Ham did was wrong, whatever Shem and Japheth did was right and honorable. Maybe Ham didn't realize that his father was going to be naked when he walked into the tent, but he shouldn't have gazed at him, left him there in his shame, and then gossiped about it to his brothers. He should have honored his father by quickly covering up while doing his best not to look. His main sin seems to be here the dishonoring of his father. Which as we keep reading in scripture, we find as one of the Ten Commandments. Honoring your father and mother. But we also need to realize from a big picture perspective that this reveals that the flood did not wipe out all sin. That's why I said kind of same song, second verse. And we have this great picture of rescue and then we're right back into corruption we're right back into sin the flood did not lift the curse the sin of adam was passed down to noah and to noah's sons and even as the passage ends in verse 29 we see that noah died he escaped the flood but death still was reigning in this world that god had made but there's good news the ending of Noah's life isn't all bad. God's blessing is seen in Noah's response, which shows that God's plan of deliverance is still on go. The gas pedal's still on go when it comes to God's plan of deliverance. Noah's, Noah curses Ham's son Canaan, which may seem unfair. Well, it wasn't Canaan that did the sin, it was Ham. But the punishment was something that's going to be felt by the generations that were to come. And so... It was really fine for Canaan to receive the curse. Noah curses Ham's son Canaan by saying, A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. But then Noah blesses the Lord here. Noah offers a blessing to the Lord. Verse 26, 27, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. And let Canaan be his servant. Now that may not sound like a reason to celebrate. I mean, it, we, those are verses we just kind of read over pretty quickly. It may not sound like a good ending to the story of Noah, but if we consider these verses in light of the grand storyline of Scripture, what we see is God's blessing shining forth as Noah is blessing God. Basically, here's what's happening. Noah is making a prophecy that Ham's descendants will be cursed and will serve the descendants of Shem and Japheth. Japheth is blessed with a prayer that God would enlarge his territory. Notice Shem. Shem is blessed with this statement that he belongs to God. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Shem is a man who belongs to God. And his future and his lineage belongs to the Lord as well. Where's the good news in all of this? The text is foreshadowing the coming chapters where we see, we will see, the descendants of Shem set apart as the line through whom the promised deliverer of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, will come. You see, God gives commands which protect human life from murder. And as God makes covenant with the earth which will protect human life from a global flood, He is blessing with this, these commands and this covenant with a purpose. 
History is moving in a particular direction. He intends for humanity to multiply and for human life to continue so that some set point in His sovereign plan, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Son of God, would be born and overthrow sin through His death and resurrection. See, even as evidence of sin grabs our attention through drunken nakedness and gross dishonoring of a parent, God's continued plan of deliverance shines forth. God's plan will overcome. Sin will not win in the end. Through the line of Shem, the deliverer is coming. And friends, this deliverer He won't get drunk and lie naked because of his own unwise choices, but he will take our shame upon himself as his clothes are stripped off and he hangs upon a cursed cross. This coming deliverer would not dishonor his father, but instead he would honor his father perfectly by submitting perfectly to his father's will of offering his one and only son upon the cross as a sacrifice for sin. This coming deliverer would not commit murder, but he would be murdered so that as his innocent blood, his lifeblood was poured out, the redemption of sinners would be purchased. That's what's on God's mind as Noah blesses him. Yahweh, the God of Shem. His continued plan of deliverance. That's what God is thinking about. Friends, in this world, sin is still a problem, but God's plan will overcome. Friend, God hates sin. God hates sin, but He loves to pour out His blessing, and His blessing always leads to life. Whether His blessing is in the form of commands for us to follow, whether His blessing is in the form of a covenant that provides us with hope, or whether His blessing is in the form of continued plan of deliverance, His blessing always leads to life. And His blessing is always centered upon His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who being more than just an image bearer of God, but rather the exact imprint of the nature of God, poured out His blood in order to make a new covenant of forgiveness and everlasting life with everyone who would believe in Him. Guys, this is one of the reasons I love studying the Bible. Because it, 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 if, we, if we spend time in it, we take the time to see what's there, we're filled with the Holy Spirit helping us understand. It tells this one beautiful, amazing story of God's love and redemption for humanity. For all who will believe in that plan, in that gospel. This is God's plan. It was His plan. It is His plan. And it will be God's plan of blessing. And it is in Christ and in Christ alone that God's blessing of life is found. And so let me just ask you, what are you doing with God's blessing of life? Have you received it? Are you living in it? Or are you rejecting His blessing of life? You see, when we reject God's command, God's covenant, God's plan of deliverance, when we reject those things in our lives, then we are rejecting human flourishing, we are rejecting hope, and we are rejecting the overthrow of sin in our lives. We are rejecting God's blessing of life. You say, well, how do we not reject it? You receive His greatest blessing, which is His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you've never trusted in Christ, You're missing out on God's blessing of life. And He's ready to provide you with rescue today. 
He's ready to pour that blessing of life into you, into your heart today through His Son, if you will believe upon Him for salvation. And if you have believed upon Him, are you rejoicing daily in this blessing that God has given us in Christ, this blessing of life? Not only here, but everlasting life forever with Him. Are we living, rejoicing in that? God takes this sinfulness and He turns it into something for His glory. All centered upon His Son. Would you pray with me? Father, what an interesting chapter from Your Word. In some ways, a very sad chapter. Lord, there's something in us that wants the, the world after the flood to be free from all that corruption that was there before the flood, but we see that there was still sin. But God, we also see that You still loved humanity. You still were willing and ready to pour Your blessing of life out through Your commands, through Your covenant, through Your continued plan of deliverance. God, I pray that we would live in that blessing each and every day. But God, Your Word, as we continue to read, we see, centers that blessing upon Your Son, Jesus Christ. The descendant of Shem would be Jesus, who had laid down His life so that we could be righteous in Your sight. And so, God, may our lives be centered upon Christ. May our worship be directed to Jesus. And may you be honored and glorified as we respond to your word, Christ-honoring worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.